Okay, welcome everyone. Let's start. Welcome back to the Hot Politics Lab. And uh, happy to see so many of you. And uh, today uh, our speaker is Ben Ruis uh, from the from Leiden University Psychology Department. I just probably pronounced it in a Dutch way. I'm not. How do you pronounce your last name, Ben? I like the way that sounded. Uh, okay. I usually say Rush, but I've been Rush. corrected here on multiple occasions. So <laughs> I can see that. I, I totally can speak from personal experience that having SCH in your name leads to all kinds of uncomfortable <laughs> Uh, uh, issues both here and in uh, uh, and in the United States. Um, uh, uh, ben is currently a postdoc at the psychology department. His research is about ideological differences and uh, particularly differences in discussed uh, sensitivity, but also the, 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 the physiological components of that. So uh, a talk that fits very nicely in the larger theme of the politics lab, and uh, I'm really excited to have uh, Ben with us uh, today. Uh, and um, yeah, without further ado, I want to give the floor to Ben. Yeah, thanks guys. Thanks Bert and, and Gijs for the invite. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this work. So yeah, my name is Ben. Uh, and most of my work, uh, as Gijs said, concerns political ideology. Uh, and specifically what I'm interested in is a person's position on kind of the left-right spectrum of political orientation. A lot of you guys talk a lot about ideology, but just a couple of acknowledgements up front. You know, ideology is complex. Uh, of course, there are distinct dimensions or facets of ideology, and these can to some degree vary, of course, as a, as a function of a particular country's culture and history. Uh, but despite this variability, there seems to be this kind of core left-right orientation that's relatively consistent across time and across different cultures and seems to structure a person's political attitudes and beliefs in relatively consistent ways. Um, those on the political right tend to generally advocate for the preservation of traditional social norms and societal structures to be less supportive often of redistributive economic policies, more accepting of hierarchy between social groups and advocate for more aggressive foreign policy and harsher treatment of criminals and social norm violators. Those on the left uh, have essentially the inverse set of preferences, right? Often advocating for social change, being more supportive of redistributive economic policies and equality between groups, and generally preferring uh, less aggressive foreign policy and more lenient treatment of norm violators. Uh, those on the right, we often call right wing or conservative. And those on the left, uh, left wing or progressive, or in the US uh, where this work was conducted, liberals. And this is the main reason I wanted to address this up front. I know the term liberal can be confusing given that it means something very different in a lot of countries, including the Netherlands. Uh, but since this work was conducted in the US, you'll see that term liberals pop up on materials and graphs and things. So just for the sake of the talk, remember liberals is those on the left, conservatives, those on the right. So, so yeah, so most of my work relates to a person's position on this left-right spectrum. Uh, and that's true of what I'll be talking about today, which is kind of in the domain of the upstream physiological factors that may shape the ideology that a person adopts, something that I imagine you guys talk a lot about uh, in, this, in this group. And specifically, this project concerns how individual differences in sensory processing, so specifically in the domain of gustatory or taste sensitivity, uh, may shape an individual's political ideology. So to first give you a little background uh, about how kind of we got interested in this question, you know, people tend to think uh, that their political beliefs are sort of simply the result of dispassionate logical thought. Uh, but the past 70 years or so of research has revealed a number of factors uh, beyond impartial reasoning that can influence our political attitudes and ideologies. So these include uh, early socialization through family and peer groups, 
personal self-interest, uh, and psychological motivations such as needs for safety and certainty. But more recently, uh, research has started to suggest that the sources uh, and the origins of political ideology might go even deeper, perhaps even stemming from more basic kind of biological differences between individuals. Uh, and this work argues that a person's genetic makeup plays a significant role in determining their political orientation, right? By some accounts explaining up to 30 or even 60% of the variance in a person's degree of liberalism or conservatism. Uh, however, uh, although this, this kind of genetic basis, the existence of some kind of genetic basis is becoming kind of relatively well-established. Uh, uh, ben? Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, I think we, you forgot to share the screen. <laughs> Sorry, oh, I, shit. I, I forgot so myself. To, I was just listening to your to your nice voice, but it's actually uh, very, okay, it's very nice to just uh, not look at the slides. Just yeah. That's uh, like uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was I supposed to have slides? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sorry, this is philosophy talk, there are no slides. Oh man, these were these were gorgeous <laughs> slides too. You guys really missed out on these slides. Uh, okay. It was nothing, it was just typical, you know. Uh, hold on, let me see if I'm, you, so you can see it now? Okay, perfect. Okay, anyway, th these, are some, these are an example of some of the slides you missed. I'm just gonna keep going though. Uh, I think everything that I've said so far was pretty easy to, to grasp. Uh, okay, so, so, Right, all, all, this the existence of some kind of genetic basis for political ideology at this point is 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 relatively well established, but uh, kind of the more proximal physiological mechanisms by which these genetic differences get translated into political behavior uh, remain less well understood. Right, uh, and this is even more true following some big failures to replicate some of the key findings in this area. Uh, so Barrett's and Heiss's recent failure to replicate the Oxley et al. findings on, on liberals and conservatives differing in their, their physiological responses to threat. So there's a lot of open questions here, essentially. Even so though, um, <clears throat> there's some research that, that has provided a couple of clues about where else these, these differences might originate. So about 10 years ago, Pete Hatemi and his colleagues did a genome-wide analysis of around 13,000 people to identify the specific regions that accounted for the high heritability of political attitudes. And interestingly, one of the regions that they identified uh, here on chromosome nine contains a large number of genes related to taste and olfaction. And so this was one of the things that kind of got us interested in the idea that, that low level individual differences in sensory processing might influence ideology. And in particular, we got interested in taste. Uh, and one of the reasons that we kind of homed in on taste is because research suggests a couple of possible pathways by which taste might influence ideology, uh, most centrally via sensitivity to disgust. So research and theory, of course, suggests that there is a deep uh, kind of evolutionarily ancient connection between taste and disgust. And so specifically, it's believed that, that some aspects uh, of taste, especially our ability to taste bitterness, actually evolved to help us detect poisons and, and pathogen threats in the environment. So for example, poisonous plants and rotten food. Uh, so these kinds of stimulate taste, uh, often unpleasantly bitter or sour, which triggers kind of a relatively reflexive reaction that's meant to expel the offending material from the body. So this is the classic look that you've probably seen in those videos of babies eating lemons with the mouth open and the tongue pushed forward. 
Uh, and this oral rejection response is believed to have been uh, repurposed or pre-adapted in evolutionary terms to form the basis for the emotion of disgust, which broadened to respond to kind of a wider range of stimuli that signal potential threats of contamination or disease. Uh, yeah, so consistent with this theorizing, some research has suggested that there might be a relation between taste sensitivity and disgust sensitivity, uh, such that having more sensitive senses of taste is associated with being more easily grossed out. So Rachel Hertz at Brown University used a common method of identifying uh, what we call super tasters, or those on the upper end of the taste sensitivity spectrum, by having them taste uh, prop which is a chemical that, depending on a person's genetic makeup, can taste either completely tasteless, intensely bitter, or anywhere between. So she found that participants who experienced uh, greater bitterness from tasting this chemical, so those with higher taste sensitivity, also reported experiencing greater disgust in response to hypothetical scenarios relating to potential pathogen transmission. So there's a bit of evidence that there's kind of a connection here uh, between, between taste sensitivity and disgust sensitivity. Uh, and there's also evidence that disgust sensitivity in turn is related to political ideology. So over the last decade or so, researchers have found that, that higher levels of disgust sensitivity are associated with greater political conservatism, uh, particularly on social issues. And there are uh, a few competing theories about why this association exists, but much of this relationship seems to center on adherence to social norms and traditional sexuality. So specifically research suggests that more disgust sensitive individuals tend to place greater value on adherence to social norms, which often evolve culturally to limit pathogen transmission, as well as to adopt more monogamous versus promiscuous mating strategies, which is also argued to limit pathogen transmission. And so then because political conservatism uh, often tends to align better with these concerns, for example, through harsher punishment of norm violators and by promoting traditional sexuality, this leads more disgust sensitive people to adopt uh, more politically conservative ideologies. So sort of integrating these different lines of research led us to the prediction that there might be an association between taste sensitivity and political conservatism, uh, especially social and cultural conservatism with greater taste sensitivity, perhaps predisposing a person towards uh, adopting a more conservative ideology. And we also anticipated that this relation might be mediated by sensitivity to disgust. So to take kind of a first pass at this question, uh, we wanted to look at whether there was an association between conservatism and some of the taste patterns and preferences that have been shown to be indicative of greater taste sensitivity. So we reviewed the literature uh, and we identified a bunch of foods that people with higher taste sensitivity tend to experience as unpleasantly bitter. So these are things like Brussels sprouts and dark chocolate and raw broccoli. Uh, we just took these foods and ran a study asking participants from Mechanical Turk to rate the level of bitterness that they experienced from, from these foods. And we also included a few control foods uh, that people who are higher in taste sensitivity should not necessarily experience as more bitter. And so these were things like bananas and corn, which don't contain uh, any of these same bitter compounds that super tasters tend to find aversive. So in this study, we also assessed uh, both general political orientation and social cultural conservatism by asking people where they fell on a seven point scale uh, from extremely liberal to extremely conservative. So our prediction here was that uh, conservatives would ex report experiencing greater bitterness from the target foods, uh, but not the control foods. And so here's how the, the bitterness ratings of the target foods mapped onto social conservatism. Uh, so here we have social conservatism on the x-axis and the mean bitterness ratings of these various foods on the y-axis. 
so here we found, as predicted, that their tasting greater bitterness from these foods uh, was associated with greater conservatism. But also as predicted, we found that conservatism did not predict greater perceived bitterness for the control foods. So consistent with our predictions, um, I'll point out that these are pretty small effects, uh, as you might expect when you're looking at something as complex as political ideology, and it's got a low level as taste sensitivity, uh, but I think we'll see that they, they seem to be pretty robust. Okay, so this first study kind of provided uh, maybe some promising initial evidence that perhaps we were onto something here, uh, but of course the, the food ratings are a pretty indirect measure of, of taste sensitivity. So we wanted to move on to more direct methods of, uh, of assessing taste. So for our next studies, we used uh, the most common method of assess assessing uh, taste sensitivity, which is asking participants to rate the bitterness of taste strips containing the chemical compound PROP. And so PROP is short for 6N-propylthiorosyl, uh, and it's this kind of peculiar chemical for which there's a great deal of individual variance in people's ability to taste. And what makes this interesting is that uh, the ability to taste prop maps on relatively well to general taste sensitivity, which makes prop kind of a, a convenient and effective test for assessing a person's level of taste sensitivity. And to go a little bit deeper for a second, uh, so although the factors that determine sensitivity to prop as well as taste sensitivity more generally aren't fully understood, uh, people generally seem to fall into sort of three broad categories of taste sensitivity, depending on their genetic makeup. So, so basically the way that it works is there's a, a, a pair of alleles on taste receptor TAS2R38, uh, which control the ability to taste prop and which are also related to general taste sensitivity. So people who inherit uh, two recessive non-taster alleles fall into the first category here, who we refer to as, as non-tasters. Uh, and so these people are lowest on the taste sensitivity spectrum. Uh, they lack the ability to taste prop and they're lower kind of an all around taste sensitivity. So for these people, the prop taste strip just tastes like a regular piece of paper. Those with one dominant taster allele and one recessive non-taster allele fall into the category that we call tasters. Uh, and tasters can taste prop, but they experience only a mild degree of bitterness from it. And their general sensitivity to taste follows a, kind of a similar pattern, right? So they, they can taste a broader range of flavors, uh, greater intensity than can non-tasters but not to the same degree of intensity as those who we call uh, super tasters. And so super tasters are those with two dominant taster alleles and they can not only taste prop, but they experience an intensely bitter flavor from it. Uh, and their perceptions of the intensity of kind of flavors and food is similarly strong with their palates being kind of far more sensitive than people in the first two categories. Okay, so, so the next three studies used very similar methodologies, so I'll just discuss them all at once. Uh, so for these studies, we recruited participants either from Cornell University uh, or for local shopping, from local shopping malls in, in upstate New York in the US, uh, from both Ithaca and Syracuse, kind of greater area. We recruited people, we gave them a prop taste strip, and we asked them to indicate how bitter the strip tasted from on a scale ranging from no sensation at all to the strongest imaginable sensation of any kind. Uh, these aren't scales that we invented. These were kind of developed over a period of years or decades by Linda Bartoshuk and her colleagues. Uh, and they seem to be kind of the best, these sort of quasi logarithmic scales are sort of the best way of, of uh, distinguishing people that are higher and lower in taste sensitivity. So we asked people to rate the strip on these scales, uh, and then we asked them to indicate their political orientation. 
Uh, and so in this study, our prediction was that experiencing greater bitterness from the taste strip would be associated with greater political conservatism. And so uh, here are the results of these studies. So across these three studies, we found fairly consistent results uh, with political conservatives tending to taste greater bitterness from the prop strips, uh, indicating greater taste sensitivity. So these effects were statistically significant in two of the three studies and non-significant but directionally consistent in the third. Uh, additionally, in study four, we also included an issue-based measure of conservatism. So far, we've been using kind of the, the seven-point self-report measures. Um, here, we use an issue-based measure that asks people to report their positions on a range of issues, such as reducing immigration, gun control, and LGBT rights. And then we calculated a participants' degree of conservatism from their positions on these issues. And on this measure, we also found that greater taste sensitivity was associated with greater conservatism. So kind of providing some convergent support for our predictions using a different measure of ideology. So, uh, so across these three studies, we see pretty consistent evidence in favor of our hypothesis that people with more sensitive senses of taste might end up being more politically conservative. But we were also interested in whether we could find a more objective index of taste sensitivity to kind of try and rule out the possibility that maybe conservatives just say all kinds of things are more bitter or, or any of the other obvious compounds I think that you could potentially generate. So in the next study, uh, rather than using participants' taste ratings, we went uh, in a sense straight to the source and actually assessed people's level of taste sensitivity by examining their tongues. So to do this, we used a common staining technique in order to examine the density of uh, what are called fungiform papilla on participants' tongues. And fungiform papilla are the larger, lighter colored bumps that you can see in these um, somewhat disgusting close-up images. Uh, and they're the primary location of taste buds on the tongue. So basically, the more of these papilla a person has, the more taste buds they have, and the more sensitive their sense of taste is. So in this study, our prediction, of course, was that greater fungiform papilla density would be associated with greater conservatism. So we set up shop uh, inside a student and community center on Cornell University's campus. And we used this adorable cat banner to lure in passersby, uh, whereupon we dyed their tongues using blue food coloring, isolated a small area with a white plastic ring, and then photograph their tongues uh, using a macro lens and a high resolution camera, which allowed us to assess papilla density, which is defined as the, the number of uh, papilla in the area demarcated by the white plastic ring. We then asked participants uh, to provide information about their political ideology, as well as to complete a short measure of disgust sensitivity. We also had people provide demographic information, pretty extensive demographic information in this study. Uh, so age, sex, ethnicity, uh, and a number of other factors. So we can ensure that none of these other variables might be accounting for the relations that we'd observed. So here's how papilidency maps onto political conservatism in this study. Uh, so here again, we found that greater taste sensitivity, uh, this time as measured by uh, density of fungiform papilla, so the density of these little bumps on people's tongues, uh, this was associated with greater conservatism. So this was uh, significant using social conservatism, marginal with uh, general conservatism. So this is the first study where we see a bit more of a divergence between those two uh, and a little more support for our prediction that this should kind of specifically be associated with social and cultural conservatism. 
Also, interestingly, uh, and as predicted, we found that disgust sensitivity significantly mediated the relation between taste sensitivity and social conservatism, uh, suggesting that the reason, or at least a part of the reason that taste sensitivity might maybe kind of nudge people towards greater conservatism is because of this deep link between taste sensitivity and disgust sensitivity. Uh, so summing up kind of our overall findings here, uh, there seems to be this relation, a uh, pretty robust relation between taste sensitivity and political conservatism, uh, particularly social and cultural conservatism. And this relation is at least partially explained, it seems, by disgust sensitivity. Um, and given that, that sensitivity to prop and papilla density are, as far as we know, largely genetically determined and relatively insensitive to, to situational influences, our findings are suggestive that the greater taste sensitivity might be a factor that predisposes an individual towards adopting a more conservative ideology. Or to put this another way, uh, uh, biological insensitivity to taste might predispose people towards greater liberalism. Um, but kind of any way you slice it, there seems to be this pretty robust relation between taste and ideology, which is uh, partially mediated by disgust. So in terms of uh, future directions, one, one thing that we're looking at is, is kind of moving beyond the realm of taste in order to understand how other forms of sensory sensitivity might shape political ideology and other related uh, systems of beliefs. So for example, small, smell, uh, smell or olfaction is also closely linked to both uh, taste sensitivity and disgust sensitivity. And so olfactory sensitivity seems like uh, another form of sensory sensitivity that could potentially uh, influence political or intergroup attitudes. This is something that we're, we're planning to launch soon, uh, looking at how olfactory thresholds might relate to political ideology. And at Ohio State, we've also been doing some uh, research lately on another form of sensory sensitivity, uh, which is interoception. And so interoception refers to kind of the, the, the sensations arising from the internal states and processes within one's own physical body, such as physiological arousal, hunger, and respiration. Uh, and so research suggests that there is uh, a lot of kind of meaningful individual differences in sensitivity to these internal signals and that a person's uh, degree uh, of, of sensitivity to kind of interoceptive signals might predict their degree of reliance on intuition. So uh, in this project, we've been examining whether, whether individual differences in, in interoceptive sensitivity shape a person's reliance on kind of gut feelings in the domains of political and intergroup attitudes and whether this in turn might shape their degree of uh, political conservatism or intergroup bias. That's my last slide. Uh, so that's all I have, I think, as part of the presentation. So I'd love to take some questions. Just say thanks quickly uh, to Raj and Pizarro and Yoel, my co-authors on this. And, uh, and thank you guys for, for having me. Right, Ben. Um, thanks for this interesting talk. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm afraid if I show you my tongue, you're just going to diagnose my ideology immediately. I, I've uh, known about you for a while, so. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, uh, um, uh, for the people listening in, uh, if you have a question for uh, Ben, then uh, please type this in the Q&A box and then I will read it out and, uh, and Ben will provide an, uh, an answer. Um, while you might be thinking about uh, about your questions, uh, Ben, I have a question for you. This is particularly to this this last the last sort of question, uh, uh, last study where you said, "Well, we're, we we are assessing this mechanism via discuss sensitivity," and I'm not sure if I entirely followed the size of the effects in the mediation model, but 
um, they seem pretty weak. And what does this then say about the assumed mechanism that is underlying this? Could it, or is this because of a relatively short measure of discus sensitivity? So, what are your thoughts on that? On that? On that? On that 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 partial mediation that just looking at these coefficients seem relatively weak mediation effects. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. It is a relatively weak mediation effect, uh, and that's why I tried to catch myself and, and keep correcting and saying, or at least a part of the relation between uh, conservatism and 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 taste sensitivity. And and yeah, it's uh, it's kind of an open question. We haven't tried to tackle this with a longer measure of disgust sensitivity. The measure that we used was just the contamination subscale of the DSR, which is like, in retrospect, you know, the DSR is kind of all over the place. It's a really kind of bizarre measure. People have critiqued it a lot in the interim between like us running this study and and meet this talk today. So uh, that's one possibility. Um, but I think another equally plausible possibility is that disgust doesn't explain all that much of this relation uh, and, and that there might be kind of other factors that, that explain this association. This is something that uh, for the sake of time I dropped from, uh, from the slides, but this is kind of another thing that, skipping through these slides, I think I had somewhere, yeah. So there's another thing that we're, we're interested in is looking at kind of other possible mediators of this association. Uh, so for example, the, kind of the role of say openness to experience, right? So, so past work suggests uh, that people who are higher in taste sensitivity are kind of more prone to having bad experiences with food. So for example, they tend to dislike foods that are very spicy or bitter or sour. Uh, and because of this, they tend to be less exploratory when it comes to food. Uh, and you might imagine that over a course of a lifetime, right, this kind of repeated experience of having a bad, uh, a bad experience of every time you go and try something new could eventually lead people to kind of distrust and avoid novelty, uh, at least in the culinary domain, but maybe even more broadly, um, this could be another kind of small portion. I don't think this is the primary determinant of openness, but it's, it's kind of another, I think, potential pathway by which uh, this this association might be explained. So so yeah, this is kind of another thing that we we want to tackle. And yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question. My personal feeling is that disgust is not the whole story. Uh, I think it's important part, and hence the framing of the talk. Uh, but 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 yeah, this is something we want to go after, kind of in our future work. Is is what else might explain this relation? Great, thanks. Uh, let's turn to some questions. So Ben, you can read if you press on the Q&A uh, uh, box and I will read them out because the participants cannot read them, but but you can follow along. So the first okay. question the first question is from uh, Adi Wiesel. Hi, Ben, great talk. It seems that much of the relationships with taste uh, sensitivity, discuss sensitivity and conservatism focuses on cultural conservatism. Do you have any insights on what physiological mechanisms, upstream features might shape other aspects of conservatism, such as economic conservatism? Thanks. Yeah, yeah, this is a great question. I mean, in general, this is something that we know so much less about as a field, like what, what explains economic conservatism. Uh, it's a tough question. I mean, I'm also hesitant to say too much about it based on our own work, just because we, we kind of didn't find as much a, a, a divergence as we thought we would between social uh, and kind of cultural orientation on the one hand and more general political orientation on the other. In that last study, there was kind of a bit of a divergence. It wasn't significant, uh, kind of the strength of the association between social versus economic, even conservatism and taste sensitivity. So uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, like I said, I, I think 
everything, kind of my entire theoretical framework, our entire theoretical framework really would have predicted a much stronger association with social and cultural conservatism, which we didn't quite find. Uh, but there's another reason, you know, we want to be running, uh, we want to try another one of these studies here in the Netherlands very soon too, because the U.S. is, is it's, a, it's a situation where, where social and economic conservatism get bundled together very tightly in very particular ways, that I think the best way to, to kind of answer that question is to go somewhere else. And so that's something we're going to be launching here soon. So in short, I have no answer, uh, but I, I, I think it's a fascinating question. I think it's something that as a field, we really need to look into more, both the physiological part, but even just the, the kind of more general sort of cognitive factors that predispose people. You know, John Joe's camp kind of argues that that uh, it's a lot of the kind of same mechanisms, kind of the same psychological motivations and I don't know, economic conservatism as well, but I think there's really compelling evidence that that there's not, that it's not, that it's kind of uh, an entirely different set of mechanisms that we're just less familiar with. Anyway, sorry. Uh, long response to a question that I didn't have a great answer for, but, but great question. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Uh, next question from Amanda Friesen. Hi, Ben. Great study. Given that woman, women tend to be super tasters and report higher disgust sensitivity, how have you thought about gender's role in these relationships? Also, I've wondered about an extension to something like color blindness the main, uh, that mainly affects men and the opposite where people see more colors and this tends to be more among women. Mm. Mm. Hi, Amanda. Uh, interesting. So well, the gender part, uh, that's definitely something that, that we kind of took into account going into this research. Um, I didn't talk about it in every study. I think I only mentioned kind of controlling to the demographic stuff in the last study, but we did, I think in every study, uh, assess gender and control for gender given these kinds of associations. There's also some evidence that maybe, yeah, uh, gender is associated with, with disgust. Yes, kind of the self-reports of disgust. Maybe also taste sensitivity, although that's a little more uh, controversial. But yeah, I mean, that's so that's something that in our studies kind of went against our effect. Uh, and so you do generally see that when we control for gender, the effect tends to pop up, uh, pop out kind of a little more strongly. So that's that uh, seems to be kind of exerting a countervailing force on us finding this association. So that's about kind of the extent of the degree to which we kind of incorporated gender in our analyses and things like that. But 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 it's interesting. I mean, I think it's you know, as, as you talked a little bit about in your talk at the political psych pre-conference, I mean, I think there's debate about whether and when uh, women are actually more disgust sensitive or the degree to which this is just kind of like a self-reporting thing, but if they are, right, kind of how might this systematically relate to political attitudes too, right? That's also another thing that seems to go in the face of what we know about the association between, you know, conservatism and, and disgust sensitivity, right? Women are more disgust sensitive, but also more liberal on average, most people will argue, I don't know. But uh, yeah, so, so it's something we did account for here it seems to push against our own effect. Uh, the colorblindness thing is fascinating. I've never thought about that possibility uh, or kind of what, I guess you're, you're thinking the ways in which like this kind of systematic difference between women and men might shape their kind of views of the world in general is a really fascinating question. And, I'll have to give it some more thought to have a more intelligent answer, but a great thought. Cool, thanks. Uh, the next question is from Sing Yao. Uh, do you think there is an order uh, for different senses? For example, olfactory systems 
uh, are part of the oldest brain regions and likely play a more crucial role in evolution than other sensory systems. May, maybe it will also be more powerful in predicting political ideology than other senses. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. And I mean, uh, yeah, it, so this is a question, as I said, what we've been like kind of thinking about and tossing around as a, as a next direction that we're kind of briefly involved in. Josh Tiber was doing a, a, some research looking at uh, olfactory thresholds and, and discuss sensitivity. And, and I got him to toss in like a right-wing authoritarianism measure. I think that research has been put on probably hiatus because of the COVID stuff. Um, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I think one thing that 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 olfactory sensitivity has going for it in terms of predicting, you know, political attitudes or kind of these higher level belief systems is that there's a lot of variation uh, from person to person. But one thing working against it, and one reason that I think we've been hesitant to really like jump into this question is that it's way more complex than taste sensitivity. Taste sensitivity seems to vary on a single dimension or at least like a, a very limited uh, range of dimensions. Whereas olfactory sensitivity, you know, people argue that there, there is no general sensitivity to smell. Uh, often people make that argument and, and kind of different patterns of what they call anosmias or insensitivities, particular uh, chemicals don't really seem to adhere together in any kind of systematic way. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are the personal reasons why we've kind of I think complications in in looking at this particular relation, uh, which is why we haven't gone after this. But I, you know, this this idea that 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 smell is more kind of closely associated with you know people talk a lot about that with like memory and, and our kind of memory systems and things like that. I, I totally buy the argument that it might have kind of a, a disproportionate effect on uh, political and intergroup attitudes, especially when we're talking about these kind of lower level, more automatic processes. That's a great thought. Okay, next question is from uh, Diamantis Petropoulos Petalas. Um, thank you for your uh, tasty talk and presentation of such interesting findings. I guess the big question is still why? Why a stronger effect of this? Uh, why a, a stronger effect of disgust only for extreme conservatives? Do you have an indication of the underlying mechanism and specifically at the cognitive level? In other words, what does this sensitivity mean for conservatives' cognitive function? I would actually expect a U quadratic function showing that both extreme sides of the spectrum score higher on uh, on discuss sensitivity or on the taste sensitivity. Uh, did you perhaps check for the presence of such effects? So kind of the Mark Grant argument we have yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, the, um, yes, we did. Uh, largely thanks to Mark Brent and the, this huge kind of blossoming literature kind of challenging the dominant assumption, you know, the liberals and conservatives differ systematically across all these different uh, dimensions and motivations and, and physiology and everything else, right? There's a, a big kind of contingent of people that say, no, no, it's, it's, it's extremist, both liberal and conservative alike, who really kind of differ, right? Extremists versus more moderate people. We never find that effect. Uh, it's something we really look for. I would find it plausible that that, that kind of effect um, could exist. In some of our other research, you know, we, we're doing a lot of work on uh, kind of the relation between ideology. We did some work on the relation between ideology and kind of in-group favoritism and kind of minimal groups paradigms, trying to get at this question, you know, kind of going to the worldview conflict literature. And, you know, there's this kind of two sides to this argument. And, and some people say it's all about extremity and some people say it's all about like left versus right ideology. And, and we were kind of wanting to strip away kind of a lot of those complex factors associated with real groups, look at like a very basic form of bias in these minimal group paradigms. There we see this kind of 
sinusoidal pattern where both extremity and conservatism independently predict. Uh, and this is an effect that, that I think a lot of a lot of even the the findings on on extremity and and cognitive rigidity also have right that that often they they seem kind of independently to contribute. We fall into kind of opposing camps just by nature, I think, in in the social sciences and in psychology in particular. And so people tend to have like a view that they want to push. So like the headline will always be either conservatives are more rigid and then somewhere buried in the results you'll notice oh also extremity was associated or they'll say extremists were more rigid and then somewhere buried in there usually there's also you know conservatism was also associated kind of over above uh, over and above extremism anyway just to say that i think that's it's a really plausible possibility it's a really interesting possibility it's a possibility that we tend to ignore too much right because we want support for like one side or the other uh, and at least in a lot of our work it's it's often both but not this, uh, not this particular line of research. We really don't find uh, this kind of any any kind of association with extremity. And yeah, I mean, this is a maybe maybe it's worth mentioning this quickly because I think it's I think it is kind of an interesting thing. And and we you know a lot of us here are probably uh, probably liberals, and people are often averse to the idea uh, that liberals are less sensitive, right? Because at this kind of gut level, it feels like like liberals are, are, are more sensitive, if anything, right? Um, and, and I think this idea sounds counterintuitive for a lot of people, right? That it's conservatives who are more sensitive to taste, right? Especially if you know a lot of the research on uh, kind of the physiological differences or the psychological differences between liberals and conservatives. You know, we know from past work that liberals are higher in sensation seeking, generally more open to kind of new and unusual experiences. Uh, there's some evidence this might be true in the culinary realm as well, right? So liberals seem to have a penchant for trying more new kind of exotic cuisines, while conservatives tend to prefer tried and true meat and potatoes type meals. So you'd think it would be liberals, right? That 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 have the more sensitive senses of taste. Uh, but but if anything, right, the relation is, is actually the opposite. So you might think, right, higher taste sensitivity, people that are higher in taste sensitivity would enjoy food more since they would be kind of equipped to experience the, the full range of possible flavors. Uh, but the research suggests, if anything, it's it's the opposite, right? And and people who are higher in taste sensitivity, like I said before, are, are more prone to having these kind of bad experiences with food, bitter, sour, spicy flavors that are more enjoyable to someone lower on the taste sensitivity spectrum are too intense uh, for people high in taste sensitivity. So they end up avoiding these lot, a lot of these new experiences. I'm going to stop in two seconds, but just to say, I think I think when you start to think about these things that way, it starts to make a little more sense why specifically it would relate to conservatism rather than extremity. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think that that there's some kind of conceptual argument to be made there, uh, but also just empirically, we find never any any support for the idea that extremities associated with with sensitivity with these measures. Great, thanks. Uh, next question is from Isabella Ribasso and Manos, I haven't forgotten your question. I will get to them. Um, the, the question from Isabella Ribasso is this. Hi, Ben. Thanks for a lot for this talk. There's, of course, evidence that ideology is partly rooted in genetics. But in terms of these tastes, could you elaborate a bit on which confounders you considered and, and accounted for? To what extent do taste buds develop in the course of a life? I could imagine that low socioeconomic status doesn't allow for being a picky eater or that there are different eating norms depending on parents' income, education. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I mean, there, so 
sort of take the first part of this, just in terms of the specific confounds that we controlled for, uh, we did control for income and education, as well as like a really, really, really nuanced um, list of, of kind of racial and ethnic categories. And we tried, you know, a, a thousand different ways to see if there was anything that knocked out the effect. Nothing did. Uh, and if anything, controlling for these confounding factors kind of brought out the effect more strongly, largely because of uh, gender, this, this kind of countervailing uh, effect of gender. But, uh, you know, your, your point is a really interesting one. I think that it's, it's kind of blurring, in a sense, kind of two questions. One is, one is uh, whether socioeconomic status affects taste sensitivity. And another is whether socioeconomic status affects the preferences that people have for food. And it absolutely affects the second one, or at least, you know, there's, there's plenty of reason to think that it would, right? Definitely, it's the case that, you know, like cultural traditions and, and, and also like affordances and things like that are going to affect things that people like, right? And it's not as though no super tasters enjoy drinking coffee or eating Brussels sprouts. Uh, if anything, you know, the relation between taste sensitivity on the one hand and food preferences on the other, it seems like there's something, uh, but it's pretty complex and it's moderated by a lot of other factors. I'm sure that there's work suggesting that socioeconomic status is one of those factors. Um, but yeah, so I, I think there's there's a lot less evidence though that socioeconomic status would would affect something like sensitivity to the chemical prop, right? So so as I said, this is something that does seem to be pretty genetically determined. Uh, we used to really think that it just came down to to those two alleles. It's clear now that it's a little bit more complicated, but that does explain like the vast majority of the variants. And so, especially with those measures, I think that that there's no reason to think that socioeconomic status would uh, would affect it, but you know, but I'm open to it, right? You know, it might be someday that we we find out that that the tongue is more malleable than we thought, just like we we found out, you know, in the preceding decades that the brain is more malleable than we thought. And I think yeah, it's an interesting possibility. Yeah, just to uh, to to add this one that Isabella asked, but how does this develop over time, right? So so if we age, does this remain relatively stable, or do we? Okay, that's just curiosity, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's kind of mixed evidence on it. There's there's some evidence that that people people's taste sensitivity can decline with age, um, which is another thing that that works against our effect a little bit because older people tend to be more conservative, and older people also tend to be maybe, if anything, lower in taste sensitivity. But I, I think maybe that the kind of dominant view is this point is not they don't really lose taste sensitivity per se, they lose often like scent sensitivity. So like they, they have a reduced ability to detect certain flavors and things like that. But that also is not applicable in the case of prop because prop is something that, that operates essentially solely via the taste buds. There's no smell to it. And so the work that suggests that older people tend to kind of lose their sense of taste is actually talking about losing their sense of flavor, which happens typically via like anosmias and things like that. Um, Beyond that, which is kind of like a controversial question, I don't know. I mean, definitely it, 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 it changes a lot kind of in the, in the younger era when people are kind of maturing and reaching adulthood. Uh, but beyond that, I don't think there's a lot beyond this kind of age thing, which as I said before, like if anything, if it's there, it's never really there in our findings. We never find any relation between, uh, between age and taste sensitivity on any of our measures. But if anything, it it's, would be pushing in the opposite direction, I think. But yeah, I mean, there, start digging into this, you realize there's a, like, a lot that we don't know about taste. Part of it is 
probably there's a lot I don't know about taste, but also we as a field, there are a lot of like a lot of open questions and, and new questions opening up all the time, right? Like I said, we used to really think that we had prop sensitivity figured out. And it was just these two alleles, but now we know it's more complex. Uh, you know, I think there's 45 different receptors for 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 bitter taste, bitter flavors, compounds. Um, yeah, I don't know. So so I don't know, but I think you know, in terms of the implications for our findings, those, those are kind of my my thoughts. Ace raised his hands, which is something new that he's doing. So I think he wants to signal something. <laughs> Yeah, uh, thanks, Ben, for the presentation. Really, really awesome stuff. It's also great to see a paper that shows that liberals have no taste. Um, just out of the box, thinking about Corona, people mm. lose their ability to taste yeah. uh, for a while. Um, would that change their ideology? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I So I haven't... That I feel really stupid for not thinking about that because it's a really, I mean, it's a really cool connection, uh, which did not cross my mind in the past. We haven't been doing this work really actively. Uh, I know, I know Amanda's actually trying to do some taste stuff right now, but this is a really complicated situation where like you, you, you can't really do research on taste because no one's willing to taste anything uh, during the particular pandemic, right? The particular set of circumstances that would make this really fascinating to be doing this research right now. Um, but but I think my, my answer is probably not. Uh, and, and because I think this is probably something that happens over the course of a lifetime, there's a, a bit of evidence in our studies that the association between taste and conservatism might be stronger among older people, which perhaps suggests this, right, that these, these kinds of predispositions and, and personal ideology come more into alignment as people get older. Uh, it's not something we've dug into too much, but but as I kind of alluded to a few different uh, times, we, we don't know, of course, but uh, I think kind of based on the, the mechanisms that we think might be operating here, especially things like openness uh, are kind of predicated on the idea that this is sort of like a repeated occurrence um, and something that would unfold over time. But it's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, in this this kind of age moderation, you know, and this, this association being strong among older people is something we wanted to dig into for a long time. And it would be like a really, I mean, uh, we've been running some studies on COVID-19 in which we asked people whether they contracted COVID-19. And we also have, you know, multiple time point qu uh, questions about political ideology. They're primarily self-identification, which I think is even less likely to be influenced by this sort of acute situational things. But I'll give it, a, I'll, I'll take a look and I'll let you know, because that would be a very cool effect. And uh, there's a a uh, question from uh, Manos Tsakiris. Uh, it was in the chat, so I'm not sure if you can see it, but I'll uh, just uh, read it out. And um, one was for clarification, uh, so I'll post that later. But uh, um, the one um, from uh, the second question is uh, is related to uh, to the discussion we just had. And um, it says, well, with regards to taste sensitivity and discussed ideology, while you acknowledge that these are correlational evidence, what are your thoughts on whether life experiences and training in taste perceptions could play a role in shifting political beliefs? And I'm sure I speak for Gijs, like we're raising a bunch of kids uh, in uh, our independent homes and we're wondering if we can still make them, uh, what, what we should do to make them either conservative or liberal. Uh, in, yeah. In and whether it yeah. matters in what we do in, in forcing them to eat our vegetables. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's an interesting question. Like I said, 
there doesn't seem to be a lot that you can do to affect the number of fungiform papilla that people have on their tongues uh, or to affect whether they can detect or not detect prop. But there, you know, there are a lot of things that we can do to shape people's taste preferences. You know, this goes back to this, this question raised earlier about, you know, how socioeconomic status plays in. We know that there are enormous cultural differences in, in what kinds of things we like to eat, right? Uh, and, and I think independent of, of the questions that we're looking at here, which is more, you know, trying, trying to get at this kind of fundamental, you know, ideally kind of a genetically determined component of this, uh, that's not the only way, right? Like we find this relation, which I think is, is nice because it's, it's more resistant to these sort of alternative explanations and, and the kind of situational factors. But I think if, if it'll, a lot of the logic holds true here, then it's it's not far fetched to think that like training or like ingraining kind of a broader and more open minded approach to foods, right? Or like just a, a custom uh, customating. Well, no, I can't think of another thing in Spanish word. Like like getting people, getting your children like accustomed to a broader range of flavors and to unfamiliar flavors and things like that. You know, it's it's not it's not impossible that something like that could shape could shape openness, uh, or maybe even downstream, you know, political ideology. So, like I said, I think you know the the this kind of core logic that I was sort of laying out with you know on this this slide here with the openness thing, uh, to the degree that you can mitigate the frequency with which a person goes out, tries something new, and has a bad experience, uh, that's going to facilitate greater openness, and that's going to maybe in turn you know shape political ideology too. A really interesting idea. It might be worth to turn to these uh, cohort studies that they've done in the U in the UK where they followed people over a bunch of decades and, and yeah. they've, they've measured a lot of biological things and who knows they might at some point ask if, 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 if parents force their kids to eat uh, bitter vegetables and stuff like that, so yeah. you can get some counter, counter pressures here. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, ben, I have also have a question for you. Um, this is a bit more at the abstract level. So, so you know, I'm convinced by the by the by the correlational patterns that you describe here, uh, and and um, and I want to compliment you on on that. I want to, but what I'm zoom out a little bit is that that what is this to talk a bit more about the theoretical component here? So we have something deep seated system one ish that of it's 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 in my 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 tongue. And that affects something relatively abstract, or correlates at least something abstract as our ideology. Is there, would there be ways of, because that, that has been a lot of how the biology politics has been things, so sort of direct roots. And a lot of the questions here are also about, well, you know, what about sort of these pressures that that come into? Is, is this, what, what do you think the future of biology and politics is for, for uh, should we study a lot of these sort of, should we find different direct correlations or yeah. is biology coming into play into something abstract in politics via its interaction with the environment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think, it, I think it depends a bit, you know, what question we ask kind of depends on where we are in a particular kind of domain, right? I mean, I think the especially the threat sensitivity stuff does reach a point where, you know, well, it seems not to be holding up particularly well. Uh, but if it had, we would be reaching the point in which we would really want to understand like the moderators and then the kind of interaction with different sort of environmental factors and things like that. But I do think that it was a pretty, I mean, 
it's very difficult to talk about this research given the uncertain state of things at the current moment. But I do think that if there's a relation between, you know, threat sensitivity and ideology in any capacity, even if it's moderated by a bunch of different things, maybe, a, I mean, I think a, a very helpful first step wouldn't have had to be the first step, but I think a very helpful first step is showing like, look, this association exists in the aggregate uh, and now we dig into why. And I think that's sort of the, the stage at which we are, or at least were when we first did this research with sensory sensitivity and political ideology, right? Like the idea that this uh, these would be association associated sounds pretty nonsensical. It makes a little more sense when I lay out the whole thing we're discussed and I show you there are these other associations. But if I just tell you like, taste sensitivity relates to political ideology, your first thought is like, that's a spurious correlation, my friend. Uh, and so I think, you know, this particular stage, we had no idea of whether these things would be associated. Uh, and, and so this was kind of like our first, our first step into this very broad area. But for sure, you know, like any research in this area going forward should be primarily focused, I think, on, on understanding the moderators of this relation. Maybe understanding, you know, like, yeah, what are the, what are the, the situational and kind of environmental factors that sort of counteract these things, right? Again, it's 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 tough because we don't know exactly what explains all of this relation. We we seem to know that disgust plays some kind of role. We don't know all that well how big the role is. I mean, I think there's there's good reason to think that openness should matter too. But like I said, if it's if it's something like openness, then that absolutely should be moderated by uh, you know things like like parenting, right? Like if the if the mechanism is these kinds of like repeated bad experiences, we know that's something you can affect or at least kind of attenuate. Uh, and so it definitely should moderate. And I, I think those are the kinds of questions that you know kind of our second generation questions that we would. Want to be diving into now in the realm of taste um yeah but uh but 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 the broader point i think i think we have been very hesitant to get into those second uh generation questions for some reason and i think it's because we're so busy arguing still about like whether there's there's an association all to begin with right but i but i take the point that you know we don't need like an aggregate level association for this to be like an interesting area of, of, of examination. And, you know, even if threat only relates to poli like political ideology under certain circumstances, or, you know, it completely flips under other circumstances, that's equally, if not more fascinating, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a lesson that, I, that I've been applying in the more recent research that we've been doing, uh, where I think we, you know, especially like a lot of the earlier work that I did was kind of looking at, you know, ideological differences and things like confidence and different, you know, like trust and intuition and things like that. And, and lately we're, we're looking more and more into the situations where that flips, right? Like, and, and going back to the question earlier about extremism, you know, there, there are these two kinds of conflicting literatures that, that just keep growing and growing, but talking past one another, right? Like it seems that extremists are more rigid, but also conservatives are more rigid. And we haven't done almost anything to, to kind of bridge these things and, and make them make sense, right? And that's something that we're doing now, right? Looking at, at you know, in situations where we have some findings kind of suggesting that in situations where political identity uh, is, is not activated uh, and, and, and the judgment task at hand is completely apolitical, conservatives seem to be really reliably more confident uh, in their judgments. For whatever reason, it seems to be something about just kind of relying on more sort of intuitive responses. We find this across all kinds of just kind of common everyday tasks. But as soon as you, you delve into the political realm even a little bit, like suddenly extremity is what matters. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I think those, those kinds of more nuanced questions are, are what we really have to be asking to, to start to make sense of like these vast, seemingly completely contradictory literatures that we've amassed. Yeah, and no, just maybe uh, I, I agree. And uh, I also want to, I think what I really appreciate about your work is also that 
know, it seems sufficiently powered, pre-registered. So we, 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 I think that's also an important yeah. step in, in, you know, there's, there's lots of maybe because our theories are not, we don't really understand yet what the theory exactly is. We, yeah. it's, it's intuitive to based on results, you know, theorize a certain relationships. So I think, uh, I think you're adding some credibility or you're adding an important level of credibility to the, to the findings. Uh, um, so uh, um, I see that Gijs raised his hands for the second time. So I'm going <laughs> to give the floor to him uh, um, uh, now. Yeah, also because we need to route up. But, yeah. but I had a very minor uh, question uh, maybe to end with, uh, Ben. Um, we've talked about bitter taste. Are there any other correlations between taste and ideology, like sweet or sour? Or Yeah. Um, we haven't really tested it. And I, I it's been so many years now. We, so we had, um, when we when we ordered our, for the very first study that we ran, when we ordered our little chemical test strips, we, we ordered a, a, just like a batch set, because I think at that point when we were ordering, we didn't even know which one was which. There was like prop and there was PNC, or I don't even remember the name of the other one. And then there was this, this other, I can't, something else right but like this is this weird chemical that people seem to to, to to taste in a bunch of different ways right so prop varies essentially in one dimension it's like is it bitter and if so how bitter is it but there's other there are particular other chemicals that people can can taste in like a variety of different ways for some people it's sour for some people it's bitter for some people it's sweet we ran a pilot with that uh we didn't really find anything uh particularly reliable but 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 in retrospect uh, seeing like the size of these effects and the size of the samples that you need to reliably get these effects, which is, you know, I said it's like 300, 400, 500 people. And that's like absolutely necessary to be adequately powered for these effect sizes. So I don't know, it's a fascinating question, right? You know, you know, people being kind of get into this like uh, appetite of versus aversive idea, right? And there's some people that are kind of less sensitive to sweet things or more sensitive to sweet things. You know, there, there are differences, right? There are differences in those sensitivities. How would they map onto ideology? How would they map onto other kind of more basic motivational profiles? I don't know, but it's a really, really fascinating question. Yeah. I'd be particularly interested in this taste. Is it called umame? Yeah. Because a lot of people don't really know what it is. Yeah. And so there you have a really think an interesting thing where there is a difference between maybe physiological experience and how people describe it and those are the libertarians those are money <laughs> people yeah so. <laughs> okay we've got that settled good uh, uh ben uh, thanks for the for the awesome presentation this is really thanks, really interesting stuff and uh, uh you'll get a uh, uh uh the coffee mark oh. uh, uh of course the hot politics lab coffee mark and you can put any sort of bitter uh, wow. drink in there. Uh, I'm actually extremely conservative and very sensitive to yes, bitter taste. So, so. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've been wondering all along whether whether it's still okay to drink a lot of IPA. No. It's, no? <laughs> it makes you conservative. So I bet we have to go back to drinking pills again, which <laughs> I think will be appreciated by our host, uh, Christian people. Okay, uh, that's it for uh, uh, today. Let me... Uh, uh, um, preview the schedule for the following weeks next week we have lou safra from sean's pop buddy uh what will she talk about bert has she already informed us yes um but now i'm blanking on the title christian i send it to you can i throw but, you but is it, is it the nature communications thing no it's oh, uh, okay. it's different it's it's how po populists look how populists look okay that's that's going to be exciting stuff 
Um, then uh, the week after that, we have the, uh, 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 the, the PhD Friday, a graduate Friday, sorry, uh, with two presentations, Neil Fushing and Christian People. And Christian will talk about his research on emotional rhetoric, rhetoric in parliamentary debates. And uh, Neil will talk about viral violence, the effects of police violence, framing group identity and militarization on public outrage and perception of police. I'm assuming this is uh, done in the United States. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the week after that, April 9, we have Diamantis, our new postdoc, uh, giving a talk on a to-be-determined to topic. Uh, Teresa Kuhn the week after, and Liz Connors in April 23. Uh, so that's a very exciting schedule ahead of us. Uh, and it's exactly 4 o'clock, so I want to wish you all a great weekend and looking forward to seeing you next week. Cool. Thanks, guys. Hey,